welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. Today's episode is presented by Volkswagen. Whatever your definition of family is, there's an SUVW that suits it. I am joined, as always, remotely by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. Cash, talk to me, man. Uh, your intro was a lot more energetic and hyper-aware than Mason Plumley was. <laughs> I guess that's where we'll start. The Nuggets and Lakers played a pretty competitive game two of their Western Conference final last night, and it ended in super dramatic fashion with Anthony Davis making a buzzer-beating three to put the Lakers up 2 nothing after a really spirited comeback by the Nuggets in the second half. And as you have alluded to, that play involved a bit of a defensive breakdown on the Nuggets' part. Most of the blame, I think, falls on Mason Plumlee, but I don't think it entirely does. And we can kind of start there and then zoom out and talk about the game and the series as a whole. Uh, Since you brought it up, I'll throw it to you. Walk me through that last possession. What happened with the coverage? And how did that breakdown lead to Davis getting that clean look at three? I mean... Off the bat, you've got Jokic defending, uh, guarding the inbounder, playoff Rondo, and you've you've got Jeremy Grant on LeBron around the elbow, I'd say. Yep. And you've got Anthony Davis on the weak side and the perimeter. And if you look, um, many people have pointed it out on Twitter, if you look at what's kind of happening communication-wise before the inbounds happens, it does look like Jeremy Grant is giving some sort of instruction to Plumlee that involves him potentially taking on the LeBron James assignment. We don't know what was said there. We don't know the specifics. What I would assume and what I think a lot of you know smart basketball people are assuming is Grant was probably reminding Plumlee that they were going to execute a switch if there was a screen involved. Now, where things get super confusing, super dicey, and honestly, downright embarrassing um, from Plumlee's perspective is that, of course, you know, as anyone who's watched this play like 30,000 times, as we all have now, there was no screen involved. It ends up with just Davis, you know, I, I guess you can kind of say he's somewhat curled around where LeBron was, but like it wasn't a screen in any sense of the imagination. They were like five feet apart when when Davis At least. Yeah, when Davis comes curling around the perimeter, catches a beautiful pass from playoff Rondo and, you know, sinks a three. But the confusion, obviously, and the reason so many people ridiculed Mason Plumley is A. He was brought back into the game for that very possession. Like, he was not closing that game out. They brought him in for that play. So it was like you literally had one job, and it was to execute defensively on that play. There was, as I mentioned, there was no screen involved. So even if they were switching everything on screens, it still doesn't make sense. Like, he he didn't, you know, follow Davis and then see a screen and think, oh, shit, now, like, LeBron's my guy. I got to go get him, and Grant's going to get AD. It was literally like, the, the ball is in the air being inbounded and Plumlee's only plan of attack, it seemed, was I'm going to run sprint straight to LeBron James. He ran like, you know, when you're like a kid playing football with your friends, he ran like a half-assed curl route that like didn't make any sense to where LeBron was. And it ends up with him and Grant both kind of hugging LeBron while Anthony Davis catches uh, this pass. And takes what was going to be an uncontested three. Shout out Nikola Jokic because after being the guy jumping around like a madman trying to defend the inbound uh, with with Rondo on the baseline, he ends up being the one to contest and gives a pretty darn good contest on the Davis three. Almost hits Davis's hand. AD just made a great shot and good for him. But yeah, like the the plumbing thing is just it's mind boggling, man. I. I completely understand that, you know, everything here is easier said than done. We're two guys sitting here who write about basketball, you know, that have a podcast about basketball that have never played anything close to professional basketball, you know, laughing about how dumb this decision was and this execution was by Mason Plumlee. Having said that, he's a professional NBA player in the rotation for a team in game two of the Western Conference Finals where the margins are razor thin between potentially being in what, you know, almost a best of five and being down two nothing. And he botched it horribly. And there's nothing wrong with saying that he absolutely bungled that. Yeah. I mean, a few things. So first of all, the Lakers don't call timeout, which I think I'm pretty sure Malone had a timeout in the chamber. So maybe he could have used one to set up the defense the way that he wanted to. But I I do think the fact that there was no timeout kind of made that breakdown possible. Now, you mentioned Grant and Plumlee are obviously communicating before the inbound, and it's unclear what they're saying, but 
Plumlee, obviously, you know, to him, the coverage was we're going to switch no matter what. He sees Davis cutting, you know, toward the ball side wing. And LeBron is standing at the elbow with the potential to be a screener. And he doesn't set a screen. Davis takes a route that takes him, you know, six, seven, eight feet wide of LeBron. Plumlee easily could have gotten through and made a good contest on that three. But I think, you know, the possibility of LeBron maybe jumping out and setting a screen um, or just seeing that cut. And like, this is all happening in real time. So if the coverages were going to switch no matter what, once Davis starts that cut, I do think it's easier for Grant to make that contest. He's closer to Davis, right? So for Plumlee, if he's expecting Grant to jump out at AD, and he went early to LeBron, very early, you can see him motioning for Grant to switch out onto AD, and he goes straight to LeBron because if if Grant jumps out to AD, then LeBron is cutting toward the rim. Like he's just slipping, and it, he's basically going to have a wide open dunk. So I do think to a certain extent, it's understandable. I think the responsibility is on Plumlee there to make a read and and to know that Grant wasn't going to switch because there wasn't a screen there. But that's not an easy read to make. So, you know, yes, the fact that Plumlee didn't make that read, like it, it ultimately falls on him. But I don't think it's as egregious as a lot of people have made it out to be. And I also think you can probably put some of the blame on Mike Malone for putting Plumlee into the game for that possession when... I think, you know, Paul Millsap is a better and smarter defender than Plumlee is. And he and Grant had been executing switches on LeBron AD actions pretty much that entire game. I think that's probably a read that Paul Millsap is able to make. So that's one thing. Another thing is, like, this was a tough shot, man. Like, Anthony Davis is, you know, what, a 33% three-point shooter? And it's a quick catch and shoot with, like you said, a great emergency closeout from Jokic who zooms from the baseline up to the wing and puts in a pretty damn good contest. And that's just an incredible shot that Anthony Davis hit. And I think that should probably be the bigger story. Although, I mean, you know, look, the breakdown, the defensive breakdown is definitely part of it, but that was an incredible shot. You know, the the other thing is Davis said after the game that the play design was for LeBron. And I wonder if, you know, maybe LeBron picked up on that heard Jeremy Grant and Plumlee talking about how they were going to cover that play. And so instead of setting the screen on Plumlee, he kind of turned and set a pin down screen on Jeremy Grant. And it was really hard to tell from the angle whether Grant could have gotten through that to actually switch onto Davis or whether he was actually well and truly pinned. And that's why he didn't switch. But either way, I think it's, it's entirely possible that the Lakers just called an audible, figured out what the Nuggets were trying to do and busted it. But all the way around, just like a really dramatic finish to that game and a huge gut punch to the Nuggets, who had a great chance to even this series and obviously can't overstate the difference between being down 2-0 compared to being tied, especially when you're already the underdog in a series. But I will say, you know, we kind of said the same thing after they blew that game three against the Clippers, where we were like, this is just a backbreaker. There's no way they can recover from this. That was to go down 2-1, though. I know. And to win four out of five against this Lakers team is like probably an insurmountable deficit for them. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that they still have a pretty decent chance of getting back into this series and making it competitive. And, and I just, I'm past the point of putting anything by the Nuggets, you know? Like, I think they have shown that they're extremely plucky, competitive, talented, and that they will find a way to be in these games, to win a game, win a couple of games, to make this a fight, I think if they wanted to win the series, they probably had to have that game. But again, I said that about game three against the Clippers. So we'll see. I do think on the whole, this game, despite the fact that they lost it in agonizing fashion, made me feel better about their chances than I felt after game one. Yeah, look, I still I still think they're going to win at least a game. I think they're a resilient enough bunch that this isn't going to like destroy them or demoralize them. But I think you ma- you made an interesting point about like the Lakers potentially calling an audible and I think that speaks a little bit to, you know, I mean it's LeBron's LeBron, the collective basketball IQ and okay, like I'm not even going to make the playoff round of a joke, but from like a basketball IQ perspective, you know, having um like Rondo as the inbounder in that situation and also LeBron kind of in the center of it, 
the collective basketball IQ there is immense, right? Like we know that. And Davis is a great player and hit a great shot. But I think it's interesting to kind of like, you know, project that against this background of what, how the Nuggets kind of didn't execute at the same time, right? And I'm not just talking about that play. Like, okay, we've we've laughed about the Plumlee thing. Um, Malone gets some blame there for putting Plumlee in, maybe not calling the timeout. Jeremy Grant probably gets a little bit of the blame. Um, Plumlee should have made a better read in real time, but there are so many things you can point at. And even just in that fourth quarter where the Nuggets will be kicking themselves. And, you know, I think maybe things that they could have got away with uh, against Utah and the Clippers, I don't think they can get away with against the Lakers in a series and against the LeBron-led team and a, and a team that's just this locked in. So, you know, early in the fourth quarter, P.J. Dozier, who gave the Nuggets some good minutes, or like con- had some and-ones, like flexing after the and-ones. He had two and-ones, I think, in the first few minutes of the fourth quarter. The problem is he missed the free throws on both of those, right? There's- I think one of them was an and-one, and one of them was just he got fouled and, okay. and missed both. Okay, so there, yeah. he, he missed three free throws, I think, in the first three or four minutes of the fourth quarter. Otherwise, it was giving them good minutes. I know you can't hold every free throw against the guy. Like, no one actually shoots 100%, but still, those things... In a close game, when you're the inferior team, those things bite you. They gave up a ton of offensive rebounds in that fourth quarter. The reason the Lakers had the shot at the end was because the Nuggets gave up an offensive rebound to them. So that is going to bite you. The other thing, and I don't think enough people are talking about this. I tweeted about it when it happened. So the Jokic scores, him and AD have this great duel back and forth um, towards the end. We can talk about that, that as well after. But So Jokic scores, puts the Nuggets up. And I think there's like maybe 31, 32 seconds to go. It's kind of two for one time for the Lakers, but also given the stakes and the situation and it's a playoff game, like you're you're not necessarily going to force a two for one, right? You're going to make sure you get a good shot. So LeBron's doing the thing where he's like roll, he's letting the ball roll so he doesn't have to pick it up and start the clock. The Nuggets let him roll that ball all the way to the three point line without anyone even feigning like like I get you know you also don't want to take a, a stupid risk a foul net fine but man you cannot let him roll the ball all the way to the three-point line without even like like make him flinch or make him think about picking up the ball they did not challenge him whatsoever and so after taking a one-point lead with like 32 and seconds and change on the clock now you're letting you essentially gifted a LeBron James-led Lakers team, a two-for-one, you know, with maybe your season on the line. And what happened is LeBron picked the ball up. Obviously, no time had gone off the clock. So now, instead of being like, okay, let's see what the Lakers can make of this year, LeBron's picking the ball up at the three-point line with 32 and a half seconds left. They left too much time. What happened, what ended up happening was, I think AD got a bucket there too. Um, LeBron started a play. It ended up with an AD bucket. And then the Nuggets ended up retaking the lead. It went back and forth. But... The point is, the Lakers got a two-for-one in that situation because the Nuggets just weren't sharp enough there, right? Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe they go for it and LeBron, it's LeBron. He still comes up with something. AD still gets a bucket. But to me, like that was one of, you know, between the offensive rebounds and the missed free throws and obviously the, you know, debacle at the end with Plumlee and Grant, like those things add up. And Maybe I, I just didn't notice them as much in the Utah series. Well, early in the Utah series, I did, but it, they were able to make up for it later. And in the Clippers series, I didn't notice it as much because the Clippers were shooting themselves in the foot a lot too. I don't, as I mentioned on our last episode, I don't think LeBron's going to allow this Lakers team to really shoot themselves in the foot like that, you know, consistently. So if you're in the Nuggets, you're going to play almost perfect basketball. And that might be unrealistic, but you have to come a lot closer to it than they did Sunday night. And, you know, to their credit, they still almost won the game. But yeah, you, you just, they got to be sharper, man. That, that, that to me, oh, like I'm not a Nuggets fan, but that infuriated me watching. Like I couldn't believe it. I was like, yo, someone make him pick the ball up. They let LeBron yeah. James roll the ball to the three point line. I, I mean, okay. I, I, I do think you can maybe challenge and make him pick the ball up earlier, but also if you, I mean, you, you mentioned the possibility of committing a foul. Also, if you lunge for the ball and LeBron picks it up and blows right past you in some cases, you know, maybe that makes it easier for them to get a two for one because suddenly LeBron is like rolling downhill with a five on four. But I, I kind of disagree that the Nuggets need to be perfect. Like, do they need to be sharper? Yeah, but they were far from perfect in game two and very nearly pulled it out. Would have pulled it out if not for, you know, that miraculous shot that AD hits at the buzzer. So I don't know that that's necessarily true. There are certain things 
that they need to do better and also certain things that they need to continue to do as well as they did in game two. You mentioned the offensive rebounds, 37% offensive rebound rate in this game. That's way too high, especially for, you know, a Nuggets team that tends to play pretty big to be allowing the Lakers to collect more than a third of their own misses just can't happen. You know, the turnovers, it's hard to, that was a problem in game one for Denver, but it's hard to, I guess, say that that was their biggest issue in game two when the Lakers actually committed more turnovers. Lakers committed 23 turnovers, Nuggets 19. So that's something obviously that both teams need to clean up. But I mean, if you're the team that is trying to overcome a top end talent deficit, then obviously it's more incumbent on you to do stuff like take care of the basketball and just execute you know, as well as you possibly can. And they've obviously been a little bit too sloppy with the basketball credit for that definitely goes to the Lakers defense as well. Um, But to me, I mean, this could be the story of the series right here. Wide open threes in the conference finals. The Lakers are 17 for 28. The Nuggets are five for 24. So you can talk about, you know, execution all you want and game planning and all that stuff. But when it comes down to it, if one team's hitting their open shots and the other isn't, sometimes that's all that matters. You're going to tell me it's a make or miss league? That's This is my long-winded way of saying that it's a make or miss league, yes. And quite frankly, the Lakers role players have been hitting their threes and the Nuggets role players haven't. Even in, I mean, in that fourth quarter, man, KCP hit a preposterous shot put three from the corner that was extremely well contested. AD hit a nasty step back three, you know, before he hit that game winner. And I think that's kind of been the story of the series so far is like the, the Lakers have just been hitting shots and the Nuggets have been struggling to do the same thing. And obviously, you know, something we talked about last episode and continued to be a story in game two was that the Nuggets really aren't getting up a lot of threes. They got up 26 in game one and only 24 in game two. And I think a big part of that has to do with the Lakers switching pick and rolls, which has kind of taken away the pick and pop from Jokic. He hit a big three in the fourth quarter, but I think that was the only three that he hit in the game. And I don't think it's wrong for the Nuggets to respond to that by just having Jokic immediately get into the post and attack the big small mismatch. And I thought they did a much better job of that, especially in the second half of game two, because in game one, they were taking way too long to get him established against those mismatches. And I was allowing the Lakers to stunt and help and scram those mismatches out in a lot of cases. And in this one, I thought Jokic was way better about just going right away as soon as he got that mismatch. And that's how he got a lot of his points in the fourth quarter. And like, you know, there were a couple of times also where he drew the double team and managed to kick it out to somebody for three. But they need to find a way, I think, to get more threes up. And I don't know exactly how they're going to do that. Maybe it's just with more off-ball screening and more movement in general to try and scramble the Lakers' D. But the Lakers' D has been really, really good and disciplined. Another crazy stat from this game, Jamal Murray was a plus 16 in 44 and a half minutes on the floor. And somehow, so in like less than four minutes with him on the bench, they got outscored by 18 points. That's, That's actually insane. I almost want to fact check you because I think you're lying. <laughs> I wish I was. I don't know how it's possible. That shouldn't be possible those to get outscored like, by that much. And like in even in bead Sixers versus the Raptors in the playoffs last year. Like those like those are numbers I didn't think I'd ever see. And this is worse because I think that was minus 12 in three minutes. And this is minus 18 in less than four minutes, which to even score that many points in four minutes is insane. Let alone to do so while holding the other team scoreless. Obviously, you know, the Nuggets offense had a really difficult time getting anything going when Murray wasn't out there. But for them to have given up that many points in that amount of time is a a little bit head scratching as well. Yeah, I don't know. I think my big picture takeaways from this game are like a lot of encouraging things from the Nuggets, one of which was their, their transition defense was way better. And we talked about that as one of the keys, something they needed to tighten up after game one. Way better, especially off of live rebounds. And like the turnovers, obviously, you know, are, are going to burn you when it comes to the other team operating in transition. But the Lakers did not get out and run off of misses to nearly the same extent that they did in game one. And then the fouling, the, the free throw disparity 
for the Nuggets was more lopsided in game two than it was for the Lakers in game one when everybody was up in arms saying the fix was in. So, you know, for one thing, I think that's an example and a reason to say these things happen for a lot of different reasons. And sometimes it has to do with which team is kind of imposing its will and playing with force. And I thought in this game, you know, Jokic especially was kind of just getting to the free throw line at will because of how aggressive he was when he was catching the ball. And I generally just thought like, because the Nuggets did a way better job of getting back and playing half court defense, like they were able to keep the Lakers off of the line to a greater extent that they did in game one. It's not all just like on the officiating. And I don't think there's implicit referee bias. I just think this is the way things go sometimes. So better transition defense, better defending without fouling and much better interior defense. Cause the Lakers only got 19 shots at the rim in this game after getting 32 in game one. And that's that's going to be a key for them. Like they got to keep putting the onus on Lakers role players to keep hitting shots. And that's going to be that's going to be their formula, I think. It's funny because when you brought up the the three point, uh, what did you say? 17 for 28 on wide open threes for the Lakers. Yeah. yeah. Insanity. And what it actually reminds me of is, you know, for any of our listeners that do remember 10 years ago, the last time the Lakers won a championship, they were not a good shooting team and they they got kind of unsustainably hot around this time of the playoffs and it carried over into the series against the Celtics and if you go back and look at it so the last seven NBA champions have all finished top seven in three-point percentage the last eight have all finished top nine the last nine have all finished top 11 you know that's not surprising we're in the three-point era makes sense you're going to be you know basically a top 10 three-point shooting team to win a title in this era the last team to not be at the very least top 11 in three-point percentage and win a title was the 2010 Lakers, who were 23rd in three-point shooting. This year's Lakers, 21st in three-point shooting. And it's something actually when I did that like anatomy of like statistical profile of an NBA champion piece that I've done the last couple of years, when I did it this year, the note I put about the Lakers is that they basically hit all the benchmarks of a usual champion except... It, it's rare that a team who shoots this poorly would win a title in this era. And then you'd have to go back to like the last Lakers team to win it. And now sure enough, here we are in the Western conference finals talking about how this bad shooting team is 17 for 28 on, on wide open three. So, I mean, yeah, like again, my, I guess that's my long winded way of saying it's a make or miss league. Cause you know, there, there are things the nuggets need to do better. You know, I went on a rant already about where they need to be sharper, but at the end of the day, sometimes when the superior team who's not a good shooting team also gets unsustainably hot, sometimes you really have no choice, you know, regardless of like no coach would admit this, but sometimes you really have no choice but to throw your hands in the air and say, I don't think there's anything we can do. Yeah, but I, I do think that is something that gives me some optimism in the Nuggets moving forward in this series is that I, I think ultimately, and look, this is the thing about the playoffs, right? A, a playoff series is a really small sample and the Lakers could just keep shooting the ball really well and the Nuggets could keep shooting it poorly. And that's, there's really nothing you can do. If they do it one more time, the series is essentially over. Like Exactly. So it, it's, you can't just say, oh, well, this is bound to regress because there's not enough runway for that necessarily to happen. But if you're looking at that, I think you can say, look, the process from the Nuggets side of things has actually been pretty good. And, you know, even that last possession is a pretty good example of it, right? And And this was, I thought, a curious decision from the Lakers, but... They started that possession by running a LeBron small pick and roll with Caruso as the screener. And he ends up just taking two guys with him and having to pitch the ball out. And Caruso got a wide open three, which is something the Lakers are the, uh, the Nuggets are going to be happy to concede. And Caruso bricked it because he's frankly not a good shooter. But if they had run that pick and roll with like Danny Green or KCP as a screener, then I think that would have been a much tougher decision for the Nuggets. But I, I think that is sort of indicative of like how the Nuggets are going to continue to defend. Like Alex Caruso is going to get all the open threes that his heart desires. And same thing with Rondo. And honestly, same thing with like Markeith Morris and even like Green and KCP to a certain extent. The, those are the guys that the Nuggets are going to want to make beat them. And I think they're going to continue to pack the paint. And maybe one of the stories of this game too is the fact that that still wasn't really enough for them to slow down Anthony Davis. Like he wasn't quite as dominant as he was in game one, but... Like if he, first of all, like he is going to be able to put a lot of fouls on Jokic when that's just like a one-on-one -on -one matchup. Jokic doesn't have much hope of staying in front of him. 
But the fact that the Nuggets are actually doing a good job making him take jumpers and AD is just raining those mid-rangers anyway and three balls apparently and is like, you know, knocking down pick and pops. That's when you really have to throw up your hands and be like, there is nothing we can do. And, and they never had, you know, a good individual option to throw at AD. And even when the team scheme is kind of loading up on him and trying to make his life difficult and keep him away from the basket, he's still finding ways to hurt them with his range. And that's just, uh, you know, might kind of be an unsolvable puzzle for them. That AD Jokic duel down the stretch was like special, special stuff, man. Both guys hitting some really tough shots. Both guys kind of like showing off, you know, basically their entire arsenal offensively with some of their like low post moves and their ability to shoot over each other. It was it was just really like fun stuff, you know, in with like really high stakes between probably the two best big men in the game right now, you know, arguably. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, we we talked about the Plumley thing, we talked about uh, a lot of the X's no stuff, and and you know whether the Nuggets can survive. But I did want to just like touch on the fact that that was last five to six minutes of just AD and Jokic trading haymakers essentially you know with like lebron james on the court lebron had some his fingerprints on this game but it was still cool to see like two big men you know obviously very modern big men but still two big men going back and forth and and trading basketball haymakers with um with super high stakes in the conference finals yeah i think that that qualifier does matter because i think maybe it's a semantic issue but a lot of people kind of want to bury the big man and say that they're dinosaurs. And I think this is a good example of the fact that like the big man isn't dead. It's just changing. And this is what modern big man play looks like. And it's awesome. Like it's beautiful to watch. And yeah, LeBron had frankly a pretty poor second half and AD kind of carried the Lakers and Jokic really carried the nuggets down the stretch as he's done really all postseason. Like Jamal Murray has been amazing and his shot making has been a huge part of you know, why the Nuggets are where they are right now. But going back to some of the conversations we had going into the playoffs and a lot of the conversations that we've had about the Nuggets just over the last couple of years and how, you know, you feel, and I feel to a a certain extent, but maybe a lesser extent, that you kind of need a guard or a wing or like an off-the-dribble shot creator down the stretch. I think Jokic is proving that that's not entirely true because to me, he has been the best crunch time scorer in the playoffs and maybe in the league, like all year time and time again, like even if you look at the numbers and kind of shots to tie the game or take the lead in like the last minute or two minutes of games, Jokic is routinely the best and most efficient scorer in those situations. Do you remember like the first few weeks of this season, about six years ago when Jokic hit, I believe two game winners at the buzzer. And this was like in the period of time when he was not playing well, everyone was making fun of the fact that he showed up out of shape again, he was doughy, whatever. And the nuggets weren't really playing well and were playing well below their capabilities, but came out of that stretch with a solid record because in a couple of the games where Jokic hadn't played well, he his prayers were answered on these like miraculous last second shots and maybe those aren't even good examples because like they seem lucky but to your point like at a certain point if a guy's like resume of crunch time scoring is that good and it's over you know we're like we're talking about a couple of years now where Jokic has been this dominant in in crunch time at a certain point it's like okay maybe maybe there's something to like maybe even the ones that seem like answered prayers aren't just all luck maybe it is whatever like whether it's touch or you know go back to Kawhi's four bouncer where like he ends up saying after like I put extra loft on that shot for the very now he didn't know it was going to hit the rim four times but you get what I'm saying like even sometimes when it seems like it's just a lucky break and luck certainly plays a factor in it a lot of times there's still some element of a great smart player doing something that is unique to players of that caliber, right? And I think Jokic is a good example. Sometimes it seems almost lucky. And then you think about it, it's like, well, if he's doing this time and time again, when like the chips are down and like crunch time, it's there's something to it. Like the guy, the guy knows what he's doing in those scenarios, you know? I don't think it's luck at all. He, he well, I'm saying proven- there was like a couple early this season where it was like fall away, like threes at the buzzer that seemed like kind of like an answered prayer. But that's what I'm saying. At some point you have to think, okay, like, He's doing something. He's got a touch. He's whether it's loft or like whatever, you know, to even yeah. put himself in that position. No, he's proven time and again that he has maybe the best touch, you know, from like 16 feet and in, in the entire league. 
And I think that's what makes him such an effective crunch time scorer. You know, that coupled with his passing, obviously, because the fact is he can score one-on-one against pretty much anybody. But if you send an extra body at him, he's going to make you pay for it with his passing. So I think, you know, if Anthony Davis doesn't hit that last second shot, the story we're talking about is at the end of the game, I mean, first of all, he has that incredible tap in on the Jamal Murray air ball, like right before the shot clock buzzer to initially put them ahead. And then after AD put the Lakers back up by one, they just go right to Jokic in the post. He has Anthony Davis, an all-world defender on him, and just backs him down, gets to, you know, within eight to 10 feet and just puts it in a little flip shot. And it's, you know, that was basically exactly what he did to Rudy Gobert on the game-winning possession against Utah. And I think to have that as kind of a fallback option in a tight game for the Nuggets and to know that if the defense decides to just send an extra body at him, that he's going to be able to make the right pass is a pretty nice luxury. And an indication that, you know, you don't always need an off-the-dribble creator in order to run efficient late-game offense. And I think, you know, we've seen those limitations with Philly trying to do the same with Embiid. And I do think the difference there is, you know, for one thing, Embiid doesn't have Jokic's touch. And if he's trying to score in the post, he really needs to get pretty deep post position. And another thing is, like, he doesn't handle double teams as well. He's not as good a passer. And that makes it a lot more difficult. So... I do think it takes a really special type of big man in order to be a quote unquote closer in the way that we conceptualize that player. But I do think Jokic is that guy. And so, you know, even just sort of trying to project Denver's future, it obviously really helps that Jamal Murray has elevated his game to the point that he is like this high end off the dribble creator. But I don't think they need to construct their team in such a way that they're thinking about, okay, well, if we get in a tight game, are we really going to be able to rely on Jokic to carry us across the finish line? Because I think he's proven that the answer is decidedly yes. Yeah, I think he's proven the answer is yes. I think, you know, as we've discussed before, his his playoff resume over two years is outstanding. And, you know, you think of his age and and maybe a ceiling he hasn't even hit yet. I definitely think uh, it, it's possible that you can construct a championship caliber team with Nikola Jokic as your best player and with him a lot of times as your crunch time closer. No argument there. I will say, though, and you kind of just alluded to it, I still think the the perimeter scorer doesn't have to be your best player, but I still think you also need a star-level perimeter wing scorer to win a title or to compete for a title. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the postseason where Jamal Murray kind of took that leap, you know, whether it is short-term or long-term, is the year the Nuggets have found themselves where they are. Because without Jamal Murray's exploits, the Nuggets probably don't even get to the second round, let alone the conference finals. No, that's 100% true. And it's getting harder and harder to say that it's not real, right? Because look at the teams that he's doing it against. I don't see a reason not to believe that he's genuinely made this leap. And yes, a lot of it has just come down to his shooting and shooting across the board has been way better in the bubble, but it's not just that. Like it's like his finishing at the basket has been really crafty and efficient. He's breaking guys down off the bounce. I think his passing has been better. Like in in every respect to me, he is starting to look like the star that a lot of people projected him to be after his rookie season. Man, I I tweeted about it after I think game two when he had that like crossover on Kawhi. And at the time I tweeted like, I, I don't remember a player, an offensive player, like straight up losing Kawhi like that on a play in recent memory. You go, John Morant. Yeah, John, true. Good point. But if, if you if you go back and look at the numbers uh, Murray put up in the West semis on possessions when he was guarded by Kawhi and the efficiency with which he scored, like you talk about the teams he's doing it against. Like what he did against Kawhi Leonard in one-on-one situations was astounding. And if like that's not a proving ground, doing it against Kawhi in one-on-one situations in the playoffs, then like I don't know what a proving ground is. Well, I guess we'll have to see him do it against OG Ananobi, the actual <laughs> best wing defender in the league. Wow. All right, that's all right, another conversation for another but day. Before, because I because I assume you're about to uh, transition us over maybe to the East. I was going to say before I let you do that, over under 1.5 games the Nuggets win in this series. That's hashtag the score bet. I'm sticking to my guns. I'm going to go over. I said Lakers in six, and I, I saw enough encouraging stuff from the Nuggets in this game to think that they will actually get those two wins. I, I don't know. 
will they tie the series or kind of like get one, then the Lakers go up 3-1, then the Nuggets stave off elimination. Everybody's freaking out because it seems like it's happening again, but then the Lakers close it out in game six. I like it. I got the whole story arc from you. <laughs> How about I you? Even, I don't even need to watch the rest of this series. <laughs> Are you, you going? I'm assuming you're going under. Yeah, I'm going under. Like I said, I, I still give them a game. I think they're resilient and I'm just good enough to do it. But I think their chance to get multiple games in this series has, has already passed them by. Like I said, I, I even said in the preview, I thought it would be a competitive series early. And, and the Lakers would kind of figure things out and, and solve it as it went along. And, you know, game two was competitive, even though they lost. But at two nothing, and you know, even like the eliminate, like I, I don't see LeBron losing an elimination game to this team. So I think they'll get one. I don't know whether it's yeah. I guess I, I'm. I think they get game three, and that'll be it. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Speaking of Game 3, we saw the Celtics essentially get back into their series against the Heat. By finally winning one, and got dicey at the end. It got dicey at the end, but they they led wire to wire in that game. And yes, the the Heat kind of put together a run in the fourth quarter that maybe made the Celtics sweat a little bit, but they were basically in control from the jump. I'll kick it to you. What did you think uh, about the Celtics' approach to that game? Obviously, Gordon Hayward being back was a pretty big factor. What were your big takeaways from game three? Well, Jason Tatum was by far the best player on the court. Um, one of his better games in the playoffs in a run that's been awesome. I mean, I, I the Celtics, I mean, they looked better overall. They looked sharper. They were one player deeper, even though Gordon Hayward had a terrible <laughs> statistical game. Um, and I mean, my takeaway from it was that coming like three games into it, I think the Celtics have been the superior team for like a large, large, large majority of these three games. And I mean, down two one, obviously this series is a lot different. Um, you know, we both picked the Celtics to win this series. I, I guess I'll stick with that because it's too early to change it. But I definitely think based on now everything we've seen over three games, the amount of time the Celtics have spent as the better team. And now they're just down two one. Like that happens in series you win. I, I'm I'm feeling good about the Celtics coming back and winning this series against my Miami Heat. Yeah, they've led for, I think, two-thirds of the minutes through three games. They somehow have four guys averaging 20-plus points in Tatum, Brown, Kemba, and Smart. So Hayward coming back, I mean, it's not like Hayward was individually all that great. but oh, He was terrible, I, like, individ- like if you, statistically. but Statistically, I don't think he was, you know, nearly as bad as, as the right. box score would make it seem. Like, mm-hmm. I actually thought, you know, he played a good, smart game yeah. at both ends of the floor, didn't force anything. And just completely changed Boston's rotation. You know, they don't have to play semi Ojale. Like, they didn't really have to play Cantor. He played a bit in the first half, but he didn't come back out in the second. And instead of playing these kind of overextended big men, they decided to just go small, which I thought really helped them against Miami's offense because of all the switching they were able to do. And in a lot of cases, I mean, Bam's still eight, right? Bam gets 27 and 16 in this game, which is exactly what he has to do when the Celtics go small, but I think it helped them sort of limit what the Heat were able to do elsewhere. And even though Bam kind of got the best of him on a few occasions, I thought Grant Williams at the five was pretty good and is a good option for the Celtics to go with as they kind of tighten their rotation. And, you know, even when Tice was on the floor, the Celtics were doing a lot of like putting smaller guys on Bam. Jalen Brown, a lot of the time was the guy that he did that with just so they were able to switch those you know, pick and rolls or dribble handoffs with Bam and make it a little bit more difficult for him to get rolling downhill because uh, they're just making sure that there's somebody between him and the basket. And switching is like the easiest way for them to do that. And, you know, the Heat, after shooting 17 for 22 at the rim in game two, were only 11 of 19 at the rim in game three. And I think defensively, that was the biggest uh, adjustment for the Celtics. They also 
this was more a thing early, but like they made, I, I thought, a more concerted effort of crashing in from the weak side corner to take away Bam on the roll. And even a couple times when Duncan Robinson was the guy in that corner, they were still making that rotation and kind of daring the Heat to make the skip pass. But I think the timing of it was maybe a bit of a factor. They were crashing a little bit later so that it didn't seem necessarily like that skip pass was an option. Or the Heat just didn't expect that the Celtics were actually going to make that rotation. And then help off of Duncan Robinson for even a half second. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, they seem to have already just made up their minds to try and fa- uh, find Bam on the roll, like with a pocket pass or a lob. And you mentioned the game Jason Tatum had. Jalen Brown, I thought, was also incredible. And a lot of how he did that was just attacking Duncan Robinson one-on-one. And I think one thing you saw was like, the Celtics have sort of just like stopped attacking Bam completely. And I think they're finding that they're having a lot more success, either using other guys other than Tice as screeners or just trying to attack their individual matchups and go at Miami's weaker defenders in isolation. Yeah, and coming into the series, everyone talked about that, whether Boston would attack and maybe even not necessarily play off the floor, but like in some ways play Robinson and or Hero off the court, right? Or maybe like they could never play together, whatever. And the first two games, they weren't really able to do that. Game three was the first time that they were really able, it seemed, to truly expose Duncan Robinson's um, defensive limitations. And if they can continue to do that, I think the Heat are in trouble. But I think the, the really important point is one you made about the lineup and going small. Because, you know, how many times have we talked you know, since this podcast began that the more you can play your best five players and your like best talent together, regardless of position, size, whatever, the better off you are. As great as Tice has been in these playoffs and as valuable as he'll continue to be if they're going to, you know, march on to the finals... I think best Boston's five best players, especially with the way Smart has played these playoffs, you know, is Tatum, uh, Walker, Brown, Smart, and Hayward in some order. Just but those five guys, Hayward back allows you to do that. You know, one of the stats I saw floating around that I thought was really interesting. Everyone talks about the Rockets going super small and like going all in on small ball and being the pinnacle of the small ball revolution. And then there's a stat out there that the Celtics actually had the most percentage of their points scored by guys six, eight or shorter in 30 years. The last team to have more of their points come from essentially small guys was the 89-90 Warriors randomly. But 93.4% of Boston's points came from players six, eight or shorter. And then you think about that like lineup we just mentioned and their best lineup, their best option is who who would be the biggest guy in the court in that case? Tatum at six, eight? Yeah. Tatum. So it's just kind of funny, right? That we we think of the Rockets with this small ball experience. They also traded away their only true like playable big man in Clint Capella. The Celtics at least have options with Tice and you know even Cantor yeah. a little bit in some. But but their best lineup is still a super small lineup, and it might just be the fact that it works better than Houston's and doesn't really get the same coverage as this like experimental small ball revolution. Yeah, well, it's just a little bit different, right? Because. Houston's offense is like so ISO heavy, like so predicated on one guy creating everything with everybody else just kind of spacing the floor and serving the spot up threats around him. Whereas Boston has, you know, way more secondary creation. And so offensively, I can totally understand why it works better against playoff defenses than the Rockets look tends to. I mean, the other thing is height isn't always everything. Because even when Tice plays, like Tice is only 6'9", you know, he's an inch taller than Tatum, but he's a little bit bulkier and can play as a center. Bam is only 6'9", but he's also super thick and long and athletic, so he can play center as well. Like, it's not just about how tall guys are, and that's something we've talked about with the Rockets before, where like, yeah, okay, their tallest guy on the floor might be 6'7", but all these guys are super sturdy and can guard guys in the post. And I, th- I think, you know, the issue they've run into is just sort of a lack of rim protection because they don't have a ton of vertical athleticism or length. But there are certain teams where, you know, going small in terms of height won't burn them as badly because they do have more vertical athletes or guys who are longer and can actually serve as rim protectors in a way that some of the guys on Houston can't. Um, so, so I thought another big kind of undersold storyline in this game was the extent to which limiting Goran Dragic can really short circuit Miami's offense. And the Celtics basically decided they weren't going to have Kemba be the primary on Dragic because Dragic has roasted him 
mostly had Smart guarding Dragic, and he did a much better job staying in front of him, preventing that kind of penetration. Uh, once Dragic did penetrate on the times that he did, I think they they did a way better job staying down on his fakes and just generally making his life a lot more difficult. So essentially, it, you know, they need to find a hiding place for Kemba. They put him on Jay Crowder for a lot of the game. And that's fine, I think, because Crowder is not a threat really to put the ball on the floor. Look, his three-point attempt rate in the playoffs is 90%. So, you know, in other words, nine of every 10 field goals he has attempted in the playoffs have been threes. And and so, it look, if like the Heat were going to respond to that by using Crowder as a screener, the Celtics were basically more in tune to the fact that they wanted to avoid that switch. Like they didn't want to get Kemba switched on to Butler because that's led to a lot of juicy things for Miami's offense this entire series. So if that meant, you know, they were doing show and recover and that allowed Crowder to get free for some pick and pop threes if they were just going to live with it. And Crowder shot two of 10 in the game and two of 10 from three, and maybe he'll be better in future games. But I do think that giving that up in order to allow better defenders like Smart and Tatum to limit what Dragic can do as an initiator is going to do more, I think, to limit Miami's offense. I think game four is going to be a beautiful slog. And I say that in sense of, I think, first of all, both teams have three days off, which is good from a basketball quality perspective. And we've seen even in the bubble, like, you know, the quality. But I also think, you know, it's two good, smart defenses and you're giving Brad Stevens and Eric Spolstra three days to prepare and game plan in the playoffs. Um, I just think... I'm excited about game four because I think the quality of basketball will be really good. And I don't think that's going to translate to scoring. I just think it's going to be like really good basketball and really good defensive basketball. And that's why I called it a beautiful slog, but I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. I mean, like the heat three point shooting as a whole just totally evaporated in game three. They shot 12 of 44 from deep. So I don't think we should overreact to that. That's a three point shooting team in the league. Yeah. They will shoot the ball better. I wonder if we see them go back to the zone as often as they have, just because it did seem like the Celtics figured out how to attack it better. Um, And some of that involved having Hayward on the floor. And some of it just involved getting into a lot more early offense, attacking before the zone got set. Or even when the zone was set, when the ball was swinging around, guys were making way quicker decisions, especially when it came to putting the ball on the floor and penetrating not necessarily holding the ball or looking to swing it, but putting it on the floor and then kicking it back out and just doing kind of more secondary drive and kick actions that got them better looks from three and also triggered some breakdowns that allowed guys to get loose on the baseline, cutting into the dunker spot. And um, I'm sure Miami will have adjustments for that as well, but it's possible, I think, that we maybe just see them go with a little bit less zone to keep the Celtics on their toes and not necessarily allow them to know what to expect. Yeah, not let them get comfortable because, you know, Miami really relied on that zone through the first two games and for the first three games. But yeah, it was pretty evident that the Celtics, um, the Celtics were definitely more comfortable with it, you know, by game three than they were in game one or even game two. And again, some of that is... Uh, just the addition of Hayward as well, right? Like extra minutes with an extra creator and playmaker on the floor. Like we talked last episode, you mentioned that, you know, they had smart flashing to the nail in the middle of trying to attack that zone. It's a lot easier to do. And Gordon Hayward's the guy doing that. And not that I think we saw too, too much of that in game three, but still it was an option they had, they didn't have before. So I definitely think the heat will have to get a little more creative and like vary their defenses a lot more than they did. Yeah. And that's, I think that's what playoff coaching and, just playoff versatility is all about is the ability and the option to do a whole lot of different things to throw off your opponent so that they can't get comfortable and they don't know what to expect. And they're not, they don't have ready-made counters for every single coverage that they're going to see because you're changing things up on the fly. And I think that's, you know, for the most part, the teams that have had the most playoff success. And this is like a a bigger conversation that I actually really want to have in the future especially when we talk about the Rockets and how their season fizzled out and what their future might look like. I think having versatile players is great, 
But the most important thing to me in the playoffs is having a versatility of style. And that's something that the Rockets did not have and that the Lakers did. And that, you know, the Raptors didn't come through, but they obviously have had an extremely versatile defense all year long. And the Celtics and Heat, the same thing. Like the teams that are still around are teams that have a bunch of different ways that they can play. Okay. I mean, we're, we're at like 50 minutes now. I, I just wasn't sure. Are you, are you starting a 54 minute bud coach bud rant right now? Cause it feels like that's where you're going. No, no, uh, no. But no. if you want to just do a couple minutes on that, then, uh, yeah, I'll, no, I'll I just see the floor to you. I'm, I'm just teasing. Cause I thought, I thought it was setting up perfectly for a rant. Another no, no, no. We can rant. just leave that. We can leave that yeah. more as like a dangling subtweet. Right. On a serious note. I mean, we can laugh about coach bud and, and the rocket style and whatever, but it's true like that. All of these things that seem like media narratives or jokes on podcasts or whatever it is that we kind of go back to and seem like low hanging fruit, they exist for a reason, right? Like the reason the whole coach bud thing became a joke or the rockets, you know, lack of versatility of style becomes a joke is because it ends up biting them in the ass usually in the playoffs. And for the most part, if we're talking about those teams so often, chances are they're a contender and a team that we think will be around later in the season. And, you know, I can't say it enough times about, you know, how small the window actually is when you're a contender and it's never actually cracked as wide open as you think it is at your most optimistic of times. So yeah, like we're going to laugh at you when, when the same things come back to bite you and you don't, um, you don't develop some sort of versatility over the 82 games that precede the playoffs because there's a sense of urgency you need to play with. Right. And sometimes like experimenting during the regular season and maybe losing games because of it seems like the opposite. It seems like you're not, you're, you're playing without a lack of sense, without a sense of urgency, right? Because maybe you're not treating the regular season uh, the way others do, but it's actually the opposite. Experimenting like that in the regular season to me shows that you understand that it will benefit you later when there is a real sense of urgency in the playoffs. So yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you about the team's left standing. Uh, I made the bud joke, but I think it's because deep down, it's not actually a joke, you know, to us. And it certainly isn't a joke to Bucks fans. So yeah, that's, that's my little rant. Yeah. I, I think that's well stated. And, you know, I go back to before the bubble started when I was kind of comparing the Rockets and the Sixers. And I actually think the more apt comparison proved to be the, uh, the Rockets and the Bucks, you know, two teams that had a clearly defined formula that has worked for them in the regular season and even, you know, in the early rounds of the playoffs. But once they run into sophisticated playoff defenses and the thing that they've relied upon all year suddenly isn't working, they don't really have plan B. And I think if this postseason has proven anything, it's that you need to have a plan B and C and D. And those those things have just become all the more important because defenses have become so sophisticated and because, you know, NBA coaching and schemes, I don't think have ever been as kind of ornate and advanced as they are right now. On a, on a kind of unrelated note, we talked a little bit about Giannis winning MVP last episode, and we recorded that. Basically, minutes before LeBron came out with some comments about finishing second in the MVP race, and that has sparked a whole debate about MVP and what it signifies and whether the voting and by extension, the regular season as a whole is broken somehow. LeBron's comments, I don't have them in front of me verbatim, but they were something along the lines of oftentimes you know, voters just go with a narrative-based approach, which is very rich coming from LeBron, given that anybody who has made the case for him winning MVP this year has essentially done so on narrative grounds, and in some cases overtly come out and said <laughs> Ramon, that they were doing so Ramon for narrative Shelburne reasons. and said his narrative is the reason she was voting for him. Yeah, and, you know, people are attaching so much to his season from the fact that, you know, he's doing it in year 17 as a 35-year-old to the fact that he's doing it in LA and tying Kobe's death into it somehow and making that part of his MVP arc somehow, which is pretty gross. And I, I don't know, I just want to say, and we said this on the last episode, but like, I don't think there is anything wrong with how MVP currently works. 
there that doesn't mean that I agree with every MVP choice, but what it represents is to me a snapshot of the regular season for which it is awarded. And I think for the most part, the right guy wins it. And like, there's so much complaining about, well, the voters don't even really know what they're voting for. Like everyone has different criteria. Like, yeah, no shit. It's not objective. It's a subjective voting process. And everyone is always going to bring their own criteria to bear when they vote on something like this. And that's totally fine. And I thought 100% the right guy won the MVP this year. And I mean, the, the answer like is if you want to win MVP, just be the best player in the regular season. And, you know, like I think LeBron, a lot of people have essentially said is still the best player in the world, but he wasn't the best player in the regular season. And that's why he didn't win. And that's totally fine. And, you know, I think Rachel Nichols came out and was like, oh, we need we need another award to represent like who the best player is. No, we do not. Like most outstanding. So we'll have like MVP and most outstanding player. Yeah, no, that's not what we need. We do not need more awards, okay? Like, I ha- I respect Rachel Nichols. She's great at what she does, but that's a horrible take. Like, first of all, even if there was a most outstanding player this year, like, why would Giannis not have won that also? Well, and there, second of all... There'd be a rule are, where the guy saying, but I can't win both. That, like, <laughs> if if you are widely acknowledged as the best player in the league and you prove it in the playoffs, and you go and you win a championship, and then you win finals MVP, you know, there's another award for the guy who's the best player in the finals. I'm sorry, but that is reward enough, or it should be. And, like, I'm sorry, LeBron, that you didn't win MVP. I know you're concerned about your legacy, and you want to be in the conversation with Jordan, and adding to your hardware is only going to strengthen your case. But, like, that's just not how this works, you know? And at the end of the day, it's like, I don't think... Jordan's legacy is dimmed at all because he didn't win MVP in 97. If anything, it's like become part of his legacy that he didn't win that MVP and then use that as fuel to beat the Jazz in the finals. Okay, so I got a lot of thoughts on this. Good. One, I mean, I said it last episode, like Giannis Antetokounmpo, if anything, you can make the argument should have been closer to unanimous as an MVP choice this year as opposed to 16 votes going to LeBron. Um. Second of all, I agree that there is no problem right now with the way this award is judged and and voted on. Usually the better like the deserving guy wins. I think it absolutely makes sense to keep this as all major sports in North America do as a regular season award, which uses the large body of work, the large sample size of the regular season to give us a snapshot over time in history of like, you know, here was for the most part the best or most valuable player of that regular season um i think there are a lot of voters in our industry that are terrible that don't watch or understand the game enough to vote on awards but that usually doesn't translate to mvp as much as much as it does to things like defensive player of the year where you have clowns out here tweeting about how they would get like vote for a guy like drummond or Whiteside because of a stat they invented called defensive rebounds plus steals plus blocks that was a real story by the way look it up clown um but having said all that, I will also say I've got no problem with LeBron being pissed about it. I've got no problem with LeBron airing it out that he's pissed. Now, should he have maybe looked into it a little more before saying something about, for like, you know, he brought up uh, 2013, I think, when Marcus Gasol won Defensive Player of the Year and LeBron thought he deserved it that year and then said, you know, like it was ridiculous because Gasol won Defensive Player of the Year, but he wasn't even first team all defense that year. The difference being one was ordered on by the media, one was ordered by the coaches. So like... You know, there were little things where he definitely maybe he should have like looked into it a bit more, but on on the sir, like I don't care. I like that LeBron's upset about it. I like that one of the two best players to ever walk the face of the earth and a guy who is still doing what he's doing at his age, um, and still adding to his legacy. I like that he comes out thinking he should have been the MVP. Like, do I think he should have been this year? No. But did I expect LeBron James to think any differently? Absolutely not, right? And the other thing I'd say is like we, maybe not we like the two of us, but in general, like the narrative around Jordan's pettiness and mean streak and, you know, self-motivation and the whole meme that came out of the last dance. And like, and I took that personally because he literally used any perceived slight real or not to motivate himself. And you mentioned like the 96, the 97 MVP 
I think it was the 92 MVP is like, I don't remember, but there were plenty of times where Jordan would say he didn't win this award or this guy didn't vote for him or this, this, someone thought this guy was better than him. And then that was his motivation. And it was like, oh, that's why everyone loves Jordan. Let's make memes of it. And then LeBron James comes out and says like, it pissed him off that he didn't win MVP and he maybe doesn't understand the scale of the voting. And everyone jumps all over it as like, LeBron's a crybaby. And like, how can you think Giannis didn't deserve MVP? It's like, no, I think both things can be true. Giannis deserved MVP. The voting is fine. Also, LeBron James should think he is the MVP. He's LeBron freaking James. Look what he did this. Like, it's not like we're talking about a guy who should have finished like 12th in the voting, thinking he should have won. In like 80% of seasons in NBA history, what LeBron did this year for a team that was going to probably win, what, 64, 65 games, is an MVP season. Like, it's not like he's coming at this, you know, after a real down year. So... Yeah, I don't think he should have won, but I also completely understand that LeBron thinks he should have won, and I don't think there's anything wrong with him saying that. I think the thing that people maybe took issue with is the specific way that he went about airing those grievances to the media, talking about narrative as if that's the reason why Giannis won, and in that way kind of diminishing Giannis's achievements this year. And also, in a way, it's almost like a... Like, he's shaming voters into not voting for Giannis next year. And essentially just giving it to who they think the best player in the league is rather than the player who was actually most valuable during that regular season. And that's fine. I mean, like, voters can vote on that award, I guess, in whatever way they want or see fit. But to make it seem like they made the wrong vote somehow this year, that, to me, is where it gets a little bit problematic. And that's not the same as him just saying, look, like, I believe in myself. I think I'm the best player in the league. I thought I deserved it, but Giannis had an incredible season. And the most important thing right now is just that we go and win a championship. Yeah. But again, I also like, I don't think like from LeBron James perspective, who probably wants to win another MVP, obviously not as much as he wants to win another championship, but still like, I don't fault him for trying to plant the seed that might give him a better chance to an MVP. I don't fault him if he is trying to manipulate the vote. Like, I really don't. Like, the guy's an insane competitor that probably wants all the hardware he can get. I will fault media that is in any way intimidated by that. Like, anyone who is going to vote differently based on what LeBron James said, I'll fault those people. You're a clown. You have no backbone. But, for real though, but like, I'm just not going to fault, I'm not going to fault an insanely competitive athlete who many... I mean, I've, I'm now I'm overusing clown in this episode, which I didn't think I could ever do, but who I, I, I'm not going to fault an insanely competitive athlete who over the years, many count the rings clowns have fraudulently claimed it doesn't have that edge or that competitive fire that they praise MJ and Kofi for. I'm not going to hold it against them that it maybe came out in this way. Like he wants to win MVP. He probably is hoping he's going to manipulate next year's vote or plant a seed. Don't fault him for that. Media just... Don't fall for it. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, okay. That's fair. <laughs> um, okay, one other thing, though, I want to say is I saw a lot of people saying, yeah, Giannis deserved to win, but LeBron deserved more than 16 first place votes, which that line of thinking also makes zero sense because if you thought Giannis deserved to win and was the right person to vote for, then basically what you're saying is he should have won unanimously. <laughs> like, yeah, you know what I mean? 100%. It doesn't make sense to say, because on an individual level, you're saying basically anyone who gave the vote to LeBron gave it to the wrong guy, but still more more people should have done that. Yeah, again, clown behavior. Like, they're, they're, this is what I'm saying, where like people can't, like you should just be able to like look at things the way they are, regard like, which to me is Giannis, maybe you can make the argument. He should have been unanimous MVP this year. I think it should, like I said, I think it should have been closer to unanimous. Also think LeBron has his like points that I respect and like completely understand why he thinks that. But yeah, anyone who's think anyone who's acknowledging Giannis is the MVP while also saying LeBron should have got more first place votes is, I mean, that's like one of the most asinine things I've ever heard. And, and we've debated many asinine things on this show over the years. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. I think that's that's probably enough for one day, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I'm getting heated. <laughs> um, this is this has been awesome, man. I think the the conference finals have been really fun so far. The playoffs as a whole. I'm glad that we're doing two episodes a week now because it seemed like when we were doing one a week, so much stuff was falling by the wayside. 
And uh, I know even though we're using a lot of this time to talk about the game on a kind of micro level uh, and just the adjustments and counter adjustments that are going on in the two series, there's just uh, never any shortage of stuff to talk about in this league. So uh, we'll be back with the second episode later this week with a couple more games to talk about. They're, the East file Finals are taking a day off to allow the West Finals to catch up and they're not playing again until Wednesday. We will have game three of the Nuggets Lakers on Tuesday night and game four of Heat Celtics on Wednesday. And we'll probably have an episode coming to you on Thursday. Yeah. The only thing I'll add uh, before you sign off, as you mentioned, you're happy that we're doing two episodes a week now. So I'm just going to say <laughs> thanks Volkswagen. Every Everybody go out and grab yourself an SUVW. There you have it. We are only contractually obligated to give the top of the episode plug, but why not? There's a second at the end of the episode. So with that, for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Down the Rock.